Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat, the classic story from Edna Ferber that inspired one of the greatest American musicals. This is the eighth book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, featuring the acclaimed Canadian actress, artist, television, and radio host, Marilyn Lightstone. You can find the entire series online at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads Edna Ferber's Showboat. Chapter 5 When April came and the dogwood flashed its spectral white in the woods, the showboat started. It was the most leisurely and dreamlike of journeys. In all the hurried, harried country that still was intent on repairing the ravages of a civil war, they alone seemed to be leading an enchanted existence, suspended on another plane. Miles, hundreds, thousands of miles of willow-fringed streams, flowing aquamarine in the sunlight, olive-green in the shade wild honeysuckle clambering over black tree trunks, mules, bare unpainted cabins, the color of the sandy soil itself, sleepy little villages blinking drowsily down upon a river which was some almost forgotten offspring spawned years before by the Mississippi, the nearest railroad perhaps twenty-five miles distant. They floated down the rivers. Sometimes there were broad, majestic streams rolling turbulently to the sea and draining a continent. Sometimes they were shallow, narrow streams, little more than creeks, through which the cotton blossom picked her way as cautiously as a timid girl picking her way among stepping stones. Behind them, pushing them maternally along like a fat, puffing duck with her silly little gosling, was the steamboat Molly Abel. To the people dwelling in the towns, plantations, and hamlets along the many tributaries of the Mississippi and Ohio, the showboat was no longer a novelty. It had been a familiar and welcome sight since 1817, when the first crude barge of that type had drifted down the Cumberland River. But familiarity with these craft had failed to dispel their glamour. To the farmers and villagers of the Midwest, and to the small planters, black and white of the South, the showboat meant music, romance, gaiety. It visited towns whose leafy crypts had never echoed the shrill hoot of an engine whistle. It penetrated settlements whose backwoods dwellers had never witnessed a theatrical performance in all their lives. Simple, childlike, credulous people to whom the make-believe villainies, heroics, loves, adventures of the drama were so real as sometimes to cause the Cotton Blossom troupe actual embarrassment. Often quality folk came to the showboat. The perfume and silks and broadcloth of the big house took frequent possession of the lower boxes and the front seats. That first summer was to Magnolia, a dream of pure delight. Nothing could mar it except that haunting specter of autumn when she would have to return to Thebes and to the ordinary routine of a little girl in a second-best pinafore that was donned for school in the morning and thriftily replaced by a less important pinafore on her return from school in the late afternoon. But throughout those summer months, Magnolia was a fairy princess. She was Cinderella at the ball. She shut her mind to the horrid certainty that the clock would inevitably strike twelve. Year by year, as the spell of the river grew stronger and the easy indolence of the life took firmer hold, Mrs. Hawks and the child spent longer and longer periods on the showboat, less and less time in the humdrum security of the cottage ashore. Usually the boat started in April, but sometimes, when the season was mild, it was March. Mrs. Hawks would announce with a good deal of firmness that Magnolia must finish the school term, which ended in June. Later, she and the child would join the boat wherever it happened to be showing at the time. "'Couple of months, miss, won't hurt her,' 
Captain Andy would argue, loath as always to be separated from his daughter. May's the grandest month on the rivers, and April. Everything coming out fresh, outdoors all day, do her good. I may not know much, but this I do know, Andy Hawks. No child of mine is going to grow up an ignoramus just because her father has nothing better to do than go galumphing around the country with a lot of riffraff. But in the end, when the showboat started its leisurely journey, there was Mrs. Hawks hanging fresh dimity curtains, bickering with Queenie, preventing by her acid presence the possibility of a too saccharine existence for the members of the Cotton Blossom troupe. In her old capacity as schoolteacher, Parthy undertook the task of carrying on Magnolia's education during these truant spring months. It was an acrimonious and painful business, ending almost invariably in temper, tears, disobedience, upbraidings. Unconsciously, Andy Hawkes had done much for the youth of New England when he ended Parthy's public teaching career. Nine times seven, I said. No, it isn't. Just because 56 was the right answer last time, it isn't right every time. That was seven times eight, and I'll thank you to look at the book and not out of the window. Oh, I declare, Maggie Hawks, sometimes I think you're downright simple. Magnolia's underlip would come out. Her brow was lowering. She somehow always looked her plainest and sallowest during these sessions with her mother. I don't care what nine times seven is. Ellie doesn't know either. I asked her and she said she never had nine of anything, much less nine times seven of anything. And Ellie's the most beautiful person in the world, except Julie sometimes, and me when I smile. And my name isn't Maggie Hawks either. I'd like to know what it is if it isn't. And if you talk to me like that again, young lady, I'll smack you just as sure as I'm sitting here. It's Magnolia. Uh, Magnolia. Something, something beautiful. I don't, I don't know what, but not hawks. Magnolia. A gesture with her right hand meant to convey some idea of the exquisiteness of her real name. Mrs. Hawkes clapped a maternal hand to her daughter's somewhat bulging brow, decided that she was feverish, needed a physic, and promptly administered one. As for geography, if Magnolia did not learn it, she lived it. She came to know her country by traveling up and down its waterways. She learned its people by meeting them of all sorts and conditions. She learned folkways, river lore, Negro songs, bird calls, pilot rules, profanity, the art of stage makeup, all the parts in the Cotton Blossom Troop's repertoire, including East Lynn, Lady Audley's Secret, Tempest and Sunshine, Spanish Gypsy, Madcap Marjorie, and Uncle Tom's Cabin. There probably was much that was sordid about the life. But to the imaginative and volatile little girl of ten or thereabouts, it was a combination playhouse, make-believe theater, and picnic jaunt. Here were days of enchantment, or would have been were it not for the practical Parthy, who, iron woman that she was, saw to it that the child was properly fed, well-clothed, and sufficiently refreshed by sleep. But Parthy's interests now were too manifold and diverse to permit of her accustomed concentration on Magnolia. She had an entire boatload of people to boss, two boatloads, in fact, for she did not hesitate to investigate and criticize the manners and morals of the crew that manned the towboat Molly Abel. A man was never safe from her as he sat smoking his after-dinner pipe and spitting contemplatively into the river. It came about that Magnolia's life was infinitely more free afloat than it had ever been on land. Up and down the rivers, the story went that the Cotton Blossom was the sternest, disciplined, best-managed, and most generously provisioned boat in the business. And it was notorious that a sign backstage and in each dressing room read, No lady of the company allowed on deck in a wrapper. 
It also was known that drunkenness on the cotton blossom was punished by instant dismissal, that Mrs. Captain Andy Hawks was a holy terror, and that the platters of fried chicken on Sunday were inexhaustible. All of this was true. Magnolia's existence became a weird mixture of lawlessness and order, of humdrum and fantasy. She slipped into the life as though she had been born to it. Parthy alone kept her from being utterly spoiled by the members of the troop. Mrs. Hawk's stern tread never adjusted itself to the leisurely rhythm of the showboat's tempo. This was obvious even to Magnolia. The very first week of their initial trip, she had heard her mother say briskly to Julie, "'What time is it?' Mrs. Hawks was marching from one end of the boat to the other, intent on some fell domestic errand of her own. Julie, seated in a low chair on deck, sewing and gazing out upon the yellow turbulence of the Mississippi, had replied in her deep, indolent voice, without glancing up, "'What does it matter?' The four words epitomized the divinely carefree existence of the Cotton Blossom showboat troupe. Sometimes they played a new town every night, sometimes in regions that were more populous and that boasted a good backcountry, they remained a week. In such towns, as the boat returned year after year until it became a recognized institution, there grew up between the showboat troupe and the townspeople a sort of friendly intimacy. They were warmly greeted on their arrival, sped regretfully on their departure. They almost never traveled at night. Usually they went to bed with the sound of the water slap-slapping gently against the boat's flat sides and proceeded downriver at daybreak. This meant that constant warfare raged between the steamboat crew of the Molly Abel and the showboat troop of the Cotton Blossom. The steamer crew, its work done, retired early, for it must be up and about at daybreak. It breakfasted at 4.30 or 5. The actors never were abed before midnight or 1 o'clock and rose for a 9 o'clock breakfast. They complained that the steamer crew, with its bells, whistles, hoarse shouts, hammerings, puffings, and general to-do attendant upon casting off and getting underway, robbed them of their morning sleep. The crew grumbled and cursed as it tried to get a night's rest in spite of the noise of the band, the departing audience, the midnight sociability of the players who, still at high tension after their night's work, could not yet retire meekly to bed. "'Lot of damn scenery chewers,' growled the crew, turning in sleep. "'Filthy roustabouts!' retorted the troopers, disturbed at dawn. "'Yell because they can't talk like human beings!' They rarely mingled, except such members of the crew as played in the band, and never exchanged civilities. This state of affairs lent spice to an existence that might otherwise have proved too placid for comfort. The bickering act as a safety valve. It all was, perhaps, the worst possible environment for a skinny, high-strung, and sensitive little girl who was one-quarter French, but Magnolia thrived on it. She had the solid and lumpy puritanism of Parthy's presence to counteract the leaven of her volatile father. This saved her from being utterly consumed. The life was at once indolent and busy. Captain Andy, scurrying hither and thither, into the town, up the riverbank, rushing down the aisle at rehearsal to squeak a false direction to the hard-working company, driving off into the country to return in triumph, laden with farm produce, was fond of saying, "'We're just like one big happy family!' Captain Andy knew and liked good food, the Frenchman in him. They ate the best that the countryside afforded." Not a great deal of meat in the height of summer, when they were, perhaps, playing in the hot, humid southern river towns, but plenty of vegetables and fruit. Great melons bought from the patch, with the sun still hot on their rounded, bulging sides, and then chilled to dripping deliciousness before eating. Luscious yams, country butter and cream. They all drank the water dipped out of the river on which they happened to be floating. 
They quaffed great dippers full of the Mississippi, the Ohio, and even the turbid Missouri, and seemed none the worse for it. At the stern was the settling barrel. Here the river water, dipped up in buckets, was left to settle before drinking. At the bottom of this receptacle, after it was three-quarters empty, one might find a rich layer of Mississippi silt intermingled with plummy odds and ends of every description, including sometimes a sizable catfish. In everything but actual rehearsing and playing, Magnolia lived the life of the company. The boat was their home. They ate, slept, worked, played on it. The company must be prompt at mealtime, at rehearsals, and at the evening performances. There, all responsibility ended for them. Breakfast was at nine, and under Parthy's stern regime, this meant nine. They were a motley lot as they assembled. In that bizarre setting, the homely, everyday garb of the men and women took on a grotesque aspect. It was as though they were dressed for a part. As they appeared in the dining room, singly, in couples or in groups, with a cheerful or a dour greeting, depending on the morning mood of each, an onlooker could think only of the home life of the Vincent Crummelses. Having seen Ellie the night before as Miss Lenora Laverne in the golden curls, short skirts, and wide-eyed innocence of Bessie, the backwoman's daughter, who turned out, in the last act, to be none other than the Lady Clarice Trelawney, carelessly mislaid at birth, her appearance at breakfast was likely to have something of the shock of disillusionment. The baby stare of her great blue eyes was due to nearsightedness, to correct which she wore silver-rimmed spectacles when not under the public gaze. Her breakfast jacket, though frilly, was not of the freshest, and her kid curlers were not entirely hidden by a silk and lace cap. Ellie was, despite these grotesqueries, undeniably and triumphantly pretty, and thus arrayed gave the effect of a little girl mischievously tricked out in her grandmother's wardrobe. Her husband, known as Schultze in private, and Harold Westbrook on the bills, acted as director of the company. He was what is known in actors' parlance as a raver, and his method of acting was designated in the showboat world as spitting scenery. A somewhat furtive young man in very tight pants and high collar, always a trifle too large— he was a cuff-shooter, and those cuffs were secured and embellished with great square shiny chunks of quartz-like stuff, which he frequently breathed upon heavily and then rubbed with his handkerchief. Schultze played juvenile leads opposite his wife's ingenue roles, had a real flair for the theatre. Sometimes they were in mid-river when the breakfast bell sounded, sometimes tied to a landing— the view might be plantation, woods, or small town. It was all one to the Cotton Blossom Company, intent on coffee and bacon. Long before White Apron Joe, breakfast bell in hand, emerged head first from the little doorway beneath the stage back of the orchestra pit, like an amiable black python from its lair, Mrs. Hawks was on the scene, squinting critically into cream jugs, attacking flies as though they were dragons, infuriating Queenie with the remark that the biscuits seemed soggy this morning. Five minutes after the bell was brandished, Joe had placed the breakfast on the table. Hot, oatmeal, steaming pots of coffee, platters of fried eggs with ham or bacon, stacks of toast, biscuits fresh from the oven. If you were prompt, you got a hot breakfast. Tardy, you took it cold. Parthy, whose breakfast cap, designed to hide her curl papers, always gave the effect somehow of a martial helmet, invariably was first at the small table that stood at the head of the room farthest from the little doorway. So she must have sat at her schoolhouse desk during those New England winters, awaiting the tardy morning arrival of reluctant and chill-blained urchins. Magnolia was one of those children whom breakfast does not interest. Left to her own devices, she would have ignored the meal altogether. 
She usually entered late, her black hair still wet from the comb, her eyes wide with her eagerness to impart the day's first bit of nautical news. Doc says there's a family going down the river on a bumboat, and they've got a teensy baby no bigger than... Drink her milk. Doll, and he says it must have been born on the boat, and he bet it's not more than a week old. Oh, I hope they'll tie up somewhere near... Eat your toast with your egg. Do I have to eat my egg? Yes. If Magnolia was late, Andy was always later. He ate quickly and abstractedly. As he swallowed his coffee, you could almost see his agile mind darting here and there so that you wondered how his electric little body resisted following it as a lesser force follows a greater. Up into the pilot house, down in the engine room, into the town, leaping ahead to the next landing, dickering with storekeepers for supplies. He was always the first to finish and was off at a quick trot, clawing the mutton-chop whiskers as he went. Early or late, Julie and Steve came in together. Steve's great height ludicrously bent to avoid the low rafters of the dining room. Julie and Steve were the character team. Julie usually cast as adventurous, older sister, foil for Ellie, the ingenue. Julie was a natural and intuitive actress, probably the best in the company. Sometimes... She watched Ellie's unintelligent work, heard her slovenly speech and her silly inflections, and a little contemptuous look would come into her face. Steve played villains and could never have kept the job, even in that uncritical group, had it not been for Julie. He was very big and very fair and almost entirely lacking in dramatic sense. A quiet, gentle giant, he always seemed almost grotesquely miscast, his blondeur and his trusting, faithful blue eyes belying the sable hirsuteness of villainy. Julie coached him, patiently, tirelessly. The result was fairly satisfactory, but a nuance, an inflection, <laughs> was beyond him. Who has a better right, his line would be, perhaps. Schultze, directing at rehearsal, would endeavor fruitlessly to convey to him its correct reading. After rehearsal, Julie could be heard going over the line again and again. Who has a better right? Steve would thunder dramatically. No, dear, the accent is on better, like this. Who has a better right? Steve's blue eyes would be very earnest, his face red with effort. Oh, I see. Come down hard on better, huh? Okay, all right. Uh, who has a better right? It was useless. The two were very much in love. The others in the company sometimes tease them about this, but not often. Julie and Steve did not respond to this badinage gracefully. There existed between the two a relation that made the outsider almost uncomfortable. When they looked at each other, there vibrated between them a current that sent a little shiver through the beholder. Julie's eyes were deep-set and really black, and there was about them a curious, indefinable quality. Magnolia liked to look into their soft and mournful depths. Her own eyes were dark, but not like Julie's. Perhaps it was the whites of Julie's eyes that were different. Magnolia had once seen them kiss, she had come upon them quietly and unexpectedly on deck in the dusk. Certainly, she had never witnessed a like passage of love between her parents, and even her recent familiarity with stage romance had not prepared her for it. It was long before the day of the motion picture fade-out. Olga Nethersoul's famous osculation was yet to shock a Puritan America. Steve had held Julie a long, long minute, wordlessly. Her slimness had seemed to melt into him. Julie's eyes were closed. She was quite limp as he tipped her upright. She stood thus a moment, swaying, her eyes still shut. When she opened them, they were clouded, misty, as were his. 
The two then beheld a staring and fascinated little girl, quite palpably unable to move from the spot. Julie had laughed a little low laugh. She had not flushed exactly. Her sallow colouring had taken on a tone at once deeper and clearer and brighter, like amber underlaid with gold. Her eyes had widened until they were enormous in her thin, dark, glowing face. It was as though a lamp had been lighted somewhere behind them. "'What makes you look like that?' Magnolia had demanded, being a forthright young person. "'Like what?' Julie had asked. "'Like you do, all, all shiny.' "'Love,' Julie had answered, quite simply." Magnolia had not in the least understood, but she remembered. And years later, she did understand. Besides Ellie, the ingenue, Schultze, juvenile lead, Julie and Steve, character team, there were Mr. and Mrs. Means, general business team, Frank, the heavy, and Ralph, general utility man. Ellie and Schultze sat at table with the Hawkses the mark of favor customary to their lofty theatrical eminence. The others of the company, together with Doc and three of the band members, sat at the long table in the center of the room. Mrs. Means played haughty dowagers, old Kentucky crones, widows, mothers, and middle-aged females. Mr. Means did bankers, scrooges, old hunters and trappers, comics, and the like. At the table nearest the door and the kitchen sat the captain and crew of the Molly Abel. There were no morning newspapers to read between sips of coffee, no mail to open. They were all men and women of experience. They had knocked about the world. In their faces was a lived look, together with an expression that had in it a curiously childlike quality. Captain Andy was not far wrong in his boast that they were like one big family, a close and jealous family needing no outside stimulus for its amusement. They were extraordinarily able to amuse themselves. Their talk was racy, piquant, pungent. The women were, for the most part, made of sterner stuff than the men, that is, among the actors. That the men had chosen this drifting, carefree, protected life and were satisfied with it proved that. Certainly, Julie was a force stronger than Steve. Ellie made a slave of Schultze. Mrs. Means was a sternly maternal wife to her weak-chested and dryly humorous little husband. Usually, they lingered over their coffee. Joe, padding in from the kitchen, would bring in a hot potful. Julie had a marmoset, which he had come by in New Orleans, where it had been brought from equatorial waters by some swarthy earringed sailor. This she frequently carried to the table with her, tucked under her arm its tiny, dark head with the tragic mask of a face peering out from beneath her elbow. To Mrs. Hawke's intense disgust, Julie fed the tiny creature out of her own dish, in her cabin, its bed was an old sealskin muff, from whose depths its mournful, dark eyes looked appealingly out from a face that was like nothing so much as that of an old, old baby. I declare, Parthy would protest almost daily, it fairly turns a body's stomach to see her eating out of the same dish with a dirty little rat. "'Why, Mama, it isn't a rat to any such thing. "'It's a monkey, and you know it. "'Julie says maybe Schultze can get one for me in New Orleans "'if I promise to be very, very careful of it.' "'I'd like to see her try,' grimly putting an end to that dream. "'The women took care of their own cabins. "'The detail of this occupied them until mid-morning. "'Often there was a rehearsal at ten that lasted an hour or more.' Schultze announced it at breakfast. As they swept up a river or floated down, their approach to the town was announced by the shrill, iron-throated calliope, pride of Captain Andy's heart. Its blatant voice heralded the coming of the showboat long before the boat itself could be seen from the riverbank. 
It had solid brass keys and could plainly be heard for five miles. George, who played the calliope, was also the pianist. He was known, like all calliope players, as the whistler. Magnolia delighted in watching him at the instrument. He wore a slicker and a slicker hat and heavy gloves to protect his hands, for the steam of the whistles turned to hot raindrops and showered his hands and his head and shoulders as he played. As they neared the landing, the band, perched atop the showboat, forward, alternated with the calliope. From the town, hurrying down the streets, through the woods, dotting the levee and the landing, came eager figures, black and white. Almost invariably, some magic-footed black man, overcome by the music, could be seen on the wharf, executing the complicated and rhythmic steps of a double shuffle, his clothes flapping about him, his mouth a bright gash of white. By nine o'clock in the morning, Every human being within a radius of five miles knew that the Cotton Blossom Floating Palace Theatre had docked at the waterfront. By half-past eleven, the band, augmented by two or three men of the company who doubled in brass, must be ready for the morning concert on the main street corner. Often, queerly enough, the town at which they made their landing was no longer there. The Mississippi in prankish mood, had dumped millions of tons of silt in front of the street that faced the river. Year by year, perhaps, this had gone on, until now that which had been a river town was an island town, with a mile of woodland and sandy road between its main street and the waterfront. The old serpent now stretched its sluggish yellow coils in another channel. By eleven o'clock, the band would have donned its scarlet coats with a magnificent gold braid and brass buttons. The nether part of these costumes always irritated Magnolia. Her color-loving eye turned away from them, offended, for while the upper costume was splendidly martial, the lower part was composed merely of such everyday pants as the band members might be wearing at the time of the concert hour and were a rude shock to the ravished eye as it travelled from the gay flame and gold of the jacket and the dashing impudence of the cap. Especially in the drum major did this offend her. He was called the baton spinner, and wore, instead of the scarlet cap of the other band members, an imposing, though a slightly mangy, fur shackle, very black and shaggy and fierce-looking and with a strap under the chin. Pete, the bass drummer, worked in the engine room. Usually, at the last minute, he washed up hastily, grabbed his drum, buttoned on his coat, and was dazzlingly transformed from a sooty crow into a scarlet tanager. The levee they scrambled. Two cornets, a clarinet, a tuba, an alto, called a peckhorn. Magnolia loved its oompa papa, oompa papa, a snare drummer, who was always called a sticks, and the bass drum, known as the bull. When the landing was a waterfront town, the band concert was a pleasant enough interval in the day's light duties. But when a mile or more of dusty road lay between the showboat and the main street, it became a real chore. Carrying their heavy instruments, their scarlet coats open, their caps in their hands, they would trudge, tired, hot, and sweating, the long, dusty road that led through the woods. When the road became a clearing and they emerged abruptly into the town, they would button their coats, mop their hot faces, a dust cap or shako, stiffen their drooping shoulders. Their gait would change from one of plodding weariness to a sprightly strut. Their pepper and salt or brown or black trousered legs would move with rhythmic precision in time to the music. From tired, sticky, wilted plodders, they would be transformed into heroic and romantic figures. Up came the chest of a baton spinner. His left hand rested elegantly on his hip. His head and shoulders were held stiffly, arrogantly. 
His right hand twirled the glittering baton until it dazzled the eyes like a second noonday sun. Hotel waitresses, their hearts beating high, scurried to the windows. Children rushed pell-mell from the schoolyard into the street. Clerks in their black sateen aprons and straw sleevelets stood in the shop doorways. Housewives left their pots a-boil as they lingered a wistful moment on the front porch, shading their eyes with a work-seamed hand. Loafers spilled out of the saloons and stood agape and blinking. And as the music blared and soared, the lethargic little town was transformed for an hour into a gay and lively scene. Even the old white fly-bitten nags in the streets stepped with a jerky liveliness in their spring-halted gait, and a gleam came into their lackluster eyes as they pricked up their ears to the sound. Seeking out the busiest corner of the dull little main street, the band would take their stand, bleating and blaring, the sun playing magnificently on the polished brass of their instruments. Although he never started with them, at this point Captain Andy always turned up, having overtaken them in some mysterious way. Perhaps he swung from tree to tree through the woods. There he was in his blue coat, his wrinkled, baggy linen pants, his white canvas cap with the leather visor, fussy, nervous, animated, bright-eyed, clawing the mutton-chop whiskers from side to side. Under his arm, he carried a sheaf of playbills announcing the programs and extolling the talents of the players. After the band had played two lively numbers, he would make his speech, couched in the absurd grandiloquence of the showman. He talked well. He made his audience laugh. Bizarre, yet strangely appealing little figure that he was. Most magnificent company of players ever assembled on the rivers. Unrivaled scenery and costumes. Miss Lenore Laverne, dazzling array of talent. Fresh from triumphs in the East. Concert after the show. Singing and dancing. Bring the children. Come one. Come all. Cotton Blossom Troop. Just one big happy family. The band would strike up again. Captain Andy would whisk through the crowd with uncanny swiftness, distributing his playbills, greeting an acquaintance met on previous trips, chucking a child under the chin, extolling the brilliance and gaiety of the performance scheduled for that evening. At the end of a half hour, the band would turn and march playing down the street. In the dispersing crowd could be discerned Andy's agile little figure, darting, stooping, swooping, as he thriftily collected again the playbills that, once perused, had been dropped in the dust by careless spectators. Dinner was at four, a hearty meal. Before dinner and after, the Cotton Blossom troupe was free to spend its time as it would. The women read or sewed. There were always new costumes to be contrived, or old ones to mend and refurbish. The black-hearted adventuress of that morning's rehearsal sat neatly darning a pair of her husband's socks. There was always the nearby town to visit, a spool of thread to be purchased, a stamp, a sack of peppermint drops, a bit of muslin, a toothbrush. The indolence of the life was such that they rarely took any premeditated exercise. Sometimes they strolled in the woods at springtime when the first tender yellow-green hazed the forest vistas. They fished, though the catch was usually catfish. On hot days, the more adventuresome of them swam. The river was their front yard, grown as accustomed as a stretch of lawn. They were extraordinarily able to amuse themselves. Hardly one that did not play piano, violin, flute, banjo, mandolin. By six o'clock, a stir. A little electric unrest, an undercurrent of excitement could be sensed aboard the showboat. They came sauntering back from the woods, the town, the levee. 
they drifted down the aisles and in and out of their dressing rooms. Years of trooping failed to still in them the quickened pulse that always came with the approach of the evening's performance. Down in the orchestra pit, the band was tuning up. They would play atop the showboat on the forward deck before the show, alternating with the calliope as in the morning. The daytime lethargy had vanished. On the stage, the men of the company were setting the scene. Hoarse shouts, lift her up there, no, down a little, I'll heist her up, back, closer. Dressing room doors opened and shut, calls from one room to another. Twilight came on. Doc began to light the auditorium kerosene lamps whose metal reflectors sent back their yellow glow. Outside the kerosene searchlight, cunningly rigged on top of the Molly Abel's pilot house, threw its broad beam up the riverbank to the levee. Of all the hours in the day, this was the one most beloved of Magnolia's heart. She enjoyed the stir, the color, the music, the people. Anything might happen on board the Cotton Blossom Floating Palace Theater between the night hours of seven and eleven, and then it was that she was banished to bed. There was a nightly struggle in which, during the first months of their life on the rivers, Mrs. Hawks almost always won. Infrequently, by hook or crook, Magnolia managed to evade the stern paternal eye. Oh, let me stay up for the first act, where Ellie shoots him. Not a minute. Oh, let me stay till the curtain goes up then. You march yourself off to bed, young lady, or no trip to the pirate's cave tomorrow with Doc, and so I tell you. Doc's knowledge of the gruesome history of river banditry and piracy provided Magnolia with many a goose-skinned hour of delicious terror. Together, they went excursioning ashore in search of the blood-curdling all the way from Little Egypt to the bayous of Louisiana. Lying there in her bed then, wide-eyed, tense, Magnolia would strain her ears to catch the words of the play's dialogue as it came faintly up to her through the locked door that opened on the balcony. The almost incredibly naive lines of a hackneyed play that still held its audience because of its full measure of fundamental human emotions. Hate, love, revenge, despair, hope, joy, terror. I will bring you to your knees yet, my proud beauty. Never, I would rather die than accept help from your blood-stained hand. Once Parthy, warned by some maternal instinct, stole softly to Magnolia's room to find the prisoner flown. She had managed to undo the special lock with which Mrs. Hawks had thought to make impossible her little daughter's access to the upper veranda deck just off her room. Magnolia had crept around the perilously narrow ledge enclosed by a low railing just below the upper deck, and was there found, a shawl over her nightgown, knitted bed slippers on her feet, peering in at the upper windows together with adventuresome and indigent urchins of the town, who had managed somehow to scramble to this uncertain foothold. After fitting punishment, the ban was gradually removed, or perhaps Mrs. Hawkes realized the futility of trying to bring up a showboat child according to Massachusetts' small-town standards. With natural human perversity thereafter, Magnolia frequently betook herself quietly to bed of her own accord the while the ban blared below. Guns were fired, Love lost, villains foiled, beauty endangered, and blood spilled. Curiously enough, she never tired of watching these simple blood-and-thunder dramas. Automatically, she learned every part in every play in the Cotton Blossom's repertoire, so that by the time she was thirteen, she could have leapt on the stage at a moment's notice to play anything from Simon Legree to Lena Rivers. But best of all, she liked to watch the audience assembling. Unconsciously, the child's mind beheld the moving, living drama of a nation's peasantry. 
It was such an audience as could be got together in no other kind of theater in all the world. Farmers, laborers, black folk, housewives, children, yokels, lovers, roustabouts, dock wallopers, backwoodsmen, rivermen, gamblers. The coal mining regions furnished the roughest audiences. The actors rather dreaded the coal towns of West Virginia or Pennsylvania. They knew that when they played the Monongahela River or the Kanawha, there were likely to be more brawls and bloodshed off the stage than on. By half-past six, the levee and landing were already dotted with the curious, the loafers, the impecunious, the barefoot urchins who had gathered to snatch such crumbs as could be gathered without pay. They fed richly on the color, the crowds, the music, the glimpses they caught of another world through the showboat's glowing windows. Up the riverbank from the boat landing to the top of the bluff flared kerosene torches suspended on long spikes stuck in the ground. Magnolia knew they were only kerosene torches, but their orange and scarlet flames never failed to excite her. There was something barbaric and splendid about them against the dusk of the sky and the woods beyond, the sinister mystery of the river below. Something savage and elemental stirred in her at the sight of them, a momentary reversion to tribal days, though she could not know that. She did know that she liked the fantastic dancing shadows cast by their vivid tongues on the figures that now teetered and slid and scrambled down the steep clay bank to the boat landing. The swarthy coal miners and their shawled and sallow wives, the farmers of the corn and wheatlands, the backwoods poor whites, the cotton pickers of Tennessee, Louisiana, Mississippi, the small town merchants, the shambling loafers, the lovers, two by two, were magically transformed into witches, giants, princesses, crones, gnomes, Nubians, genii. At the little ticket window sat Doc, the astute, or Captain Andy. Later, Mrs. Hawks was found to possess a grim genius for handling ticket-seeking crowds and the intricacies of ticket rack and small coins. Those dimes, quarters, and half-dollars poured so willingly into the half-oval of the ticket window's open mouth found their way there, often enough, through a trail of pain and sweat and blood. It was all one to Parthy. Black faces, white faces, hands gnarled, hands calloused, men in jeans, women in calico, babies, children. Give me a ticket. I only got fifteen. How much for her here? Many of them had never seen a theater or a play. It was a strangely quiet crowd, usually. Little of laughter, of shouting. They came to the showboat timid, wide-eyed, wondering, like children. Two men of the steamboat crew, or two of the musicians, acted as ushers. After the first act was over, they had often to assure these simple folk that the play was not yet ended. This is just a recess. You come back to your seat in a couple of minutes. No, no, it isn't over. There's lots more to the show. After the play, there was the concert. Doc, Andy, and the ushers passed up and down between the acts, selling tickets for this. They required an additional fifteen cents. Every member of the Cotton Blossom troupe must be able to sing, dance, play some musical instrument, or give a monologue. In some way, contribute to the half-hour of entertainment following the regular performance. Now, the band struck up. The kerosene lamps on the walls were turned low. The scuffling, shuffling, coughing audience became quiet, quiet. There was in that stillness something of fright. Seamed faces, furrowed faces, drab, bitter, sodden, childlike, weary, 
sometimes startlingly clear-cut in that half-light, could be glimpsed a profile of some gaunt southern laborer or backwoodsman, and it was the profile of a portrait seen in some gallery or in the illustration of a book of history. A nose, high-bred, aquiline, a sensitive, haughty mouth, eyes deep-set, arrogant. Spanish? French? England? The blood of a Stuart? A Plantagenet? Some royal rogue or adventurer of many years ago, whose seed, perhaps, this was? The curtain rose. The music ceased jerkily in mid-bar. They became little children listening to a fairy tale. A glorious world of unreality opened before their eyes. Things happened. They knew that in life things did not happen thus, but here they saw, believed, and were happy. Innocence wore golden curls. Wickedness wore black. Love triumphed. Right conquered. Virtue was rewarded. Evil punished. They forgot the cotton fields, the wheat fields, the cornfields. They forgot the coal mines, the potato patch, the stable, the barn, the shed. They forgot the labor under the pitiless blaze of the noonday sun, the bitter, marrow-numbing chill of winter, the blistered skin, the frozen road, wind, snow, rain, flood. The women forgot for an hour their wash tubs, their kitchen stoves, childbirth pains, drudgery, worry, disappointment. Here were blood, lust, love, passion. Here were warmth, enchantment, laughter, music. It was anodyne. It was lethe. It was escape. It was the theater. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the eighth book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast series. Other readings include Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.